Hi, this is Kimberly with A Novel Thought. Today, my guest is David Kelso, a radio personality who has traveled the globe to cover current events, places like Guantanamo and Iraq. Like me, David is a military brat and has lived in places like Germany and Hawaii, finally settling in Oklahoma, making a home as a DJ at KRXO in 1991 and now on KOMA 92.5. On any given day... David can be seen running across the campus at OU where he teaches in the journalism department in his spare time. It's also where you might find him in one of his Grateful Dead t-shirts and where students go out of their way to greet him. Why? Because he's that guy. The one that when you meet him, he's undeniably, unapologetically himself, and it's a breath of fresh air. Most recently, he's battled cancer, making his journey public, giving us all a view of what strength means. David, welcome. Wow. You make me a lot cooler than I really am. <laughs> Thank you very much for that introduction. Those were wonderful words. Well, it's nice to hear how people view you. Uh, sometimes it's a little intimidating because, um, especially lately, you know, with some of the coverage, what we're going through is getting. I'm always afraid people think I'm cooler than I really am. I think that's what gives you your charm. You're grounded. It's kind of nice. And so speaking of cool, let's talk radio. How did you start your journey? Give me the, the 411 on um, that. Well, there's the kind of true answer, and then there's the other kind of true answer. I was on the radio for the first time when I was nine, and a friend of my dad's let me segue a record on a radio station. I segued into Baby, You Can Drive My Car by the Beatles. I still have the 45. And he said, now reach over there and turn the volume knob up as loud as you want. And I turned it all the way up, and he said, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's the <laughs> kind of people that turn it up a little bit, and there's the kind of people that turn it up all the way. You're going to be a DJ. This is the only place in the world where nobody's ever going to be able to tell you to turn it down. Wow. And that sort of struck with me. Now, fast forward a bunch of years into college, we were up late making a bunch of bad moral choices, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and I was talking about that, and somebody said, you should be a DJ. And so we called, and we were, we shouldn't have been operating any machinery, let alone a phone. Uh, we called the cat, right? And Greg Zubek was doing nights at the phone at the time, and he said, come up tomorrow and be an intern. And so we woke up the next day, and we made more bad moral choices. And somebody <laughs> said, hey, are you going to go up there? And I said, I said, nah. And they said, what are you, chicken? They didn't call me chicken, but it was a it was a word for cat that we don't like to use a lot. Uh, and I said, well, okay, fine. So I went up there on a dare, and they made me an intern at the cat. And 30-something years later, I'm still doing it. And Phil was right. Nobody's ever been able to tell me to turn it down. No, it's amazing. And to anyone that listens to you or knows you, it's clear that you love rock and roll. It's clear, especially with your T-shirt collection. So tell me how music has shaped. Obviously, you've given me some insight. Tell me how music has shaped who you are in and or outside of work. Music defines my life. Uh, music decorates memories. On the inside of my wedding ring is a lyric to an Almond Brothers song. All of my pets have been named after rock and roll songs. Anything you say, do, or think will make me think of a song. Music just sort of grounds my memories to tangible things. Music, I think, is the one thing that we all sort of speak. Mm -hmm. My mom's into Anne Murray. I'm into Led Zeppelin, right? But we sort of meet around <laughs> John Denver and stuff like that, right? So we found a common language that we could listen to on road trips. My dad's a Porter Wagner guy, you know, but he also taught me about Chris Christopherson and Johnny Cash and the Highwaymen and some of the great singer-songwriters this country's ever produced. And then I sort of managed to find my way into rock and roll all by myself. Um, and that led me to the Grateful Dead, which led me to jazz and bluegrass and all kinds 
tides of other things. So music is a set of rivers, you know, and I just I've been following them my whole life. So they define my experiences for me. That's a really, really cool answer. Oh, well, yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, you know, music is a language, right? We all speak it. And if you go look up Molly, the country, go go to YouTube and and Google Molly, M-A-L-I, comic guitar players. Mm -hmm. You'll hear the roots of rock and roll. Mm -hmm. You'll hear the music that got onto the slave ships and came over to the colonial south. And you'll hear it as it goes north into St. Louis and Chicago and up the Mississippi River and becomes rock and roll. Right. It's all one big path. And it's just the thing that links humanity together, I think. I totally agree. There's a grassroots base to all of it that connects our souls, point blank. Yeah. Everything is all a song line. That's awesome. So another sweet part of your job is it allows you to use your media credentials to report from different parts of the globe. I talked about that in your intro just a little bit. Where's the scariest place you reported from? And did you ever think, what am I doing here? Um, I actually have a source that says you got shot by a taser. So (laughs) you want to elaborate? I made three trips to Iraq in 2005, 2006, and 2008. Mm. And in 2008, I visited the 45th Infantry Brigade Combat Team, the Thunderbirds, Mm -hmm. from Oklahoma. And they were at a camp in Baghdad that was responsible for detaining suspects and targets and stuff like that. And every soldier that works inside the wire, as they say, in that detention facility has to get tased and has to get uh, pepper sprayed. Wow. That way, when you tase somebody or pepper spray somebody, it's not something you do wantonly. It's not something you do without knowing that, man, I'm really about to hurt this guy. Right. And I started asking for interviews with this officer and that advanced NCO, and I started needing people to talk to for what I was trying to put together over there. And you know, they all kind of started turning their shoulders and they didn't really want to talk to the guy that wasn't, you know, that wasn't in the circle. Right. Well, you want to join the team, do what they do. And an NCO that I was with, a guy named Eric Wolf, suggested your street cred probably go up if we went and did this taser thing. <laughs> um, what? Um, so we got, we got to where they do it. And thankfully they didn't like shoot me with the barbs or anything like that. What they did is they get three guys and we locked arms and they tied a lead to one belt loop and they tied the other lead on the other side and the electricity passed through all three of us. And man, I tell you, if somebody ever says stop or I will tase you, you should stop immediately. (laughs) It's a rough experience, but it did. It got me all the interviews that I I needed. (laughs) I would imagine. I know my dad has gone through that being military. He said, as far as the pepper spray and stuff, your eyes water real bad, and then tasing knocks you to your knees, basically. So I'm glad they belted you up and <laughs> had someone on each side of well, you. Well, they, they told us, they said, uh, they said, well, the video's on YouTube. Kelso gets tased. Find it if you want to. Awesome. But they said, get down on your knees. And I said, how come? I said, because you're going there anyway. <laughs> Um, and, and it turned out it was really smart because, man, they hit that trigger and all three of us flopped over onto our faces. Oh, wow. And if you see the video, one of us is screaming, and I swear to God, it's not me. <laughs> I would have been screaming, but I couldn't get my jaw to unclench. Oh, my gosh. That sounds miserable. It'll it'll take the fight out of you. It really will. Oh, my gosh. So other than being tased, tell me about some of the scariest places. Well, you know, we were in Fallujah um, in 2005, uh, in April of 2005, and the battle for Fallujah was in November of 2004, Mm -hmm. and we did a windshield tour of Fallujah, and it was 
I mean, it wasn't really scary at the time, Mm -hmm. but when we got back, somebody pointed out that, you know, a truckload full of journalists was a really, really, really high value target. And and that sort of made me feel like the wide mouth frog, you know, oh, yeah. Um, So Fallujah was kind of scary, but we were surrounded by Marines. Yeah. And it's not, man, you know, you want to walk softly and carry a big stick. Go with the Marines, right? Uh, There's not a bigger, yeah, there ain't a bigger stick out there. Um, But being in Fallujah in 2005 was kind of scary. Went back in 2006, it was a little less scary. We had some pretty interesting helicopter rides over Ramadi. And one time, actually, ironically, it was funny, we was watching CNN, I was inside the green zone, and, you know, was getting ready to do some blogging, getting ready to make some phone calls. And I was listening to some Senate hearing or congressional hearing or yammering people in suits hearing, whatever. And they said that all we managed to do was secure the green zone in Iraq. And here I was standing smack in the middle of the green zone. And there was an explosion so loud that it knocked us two feet up off the table. Wow. And I thought, man, I don't think we've even managed to secure the green zone, to be honest with you. So most of that fear was, man, it's scarier to look at. And and this is from my perspective, right? I was never out there on the front lines. We weren't being shot at a lot. But people over there are pretty amazing, right? Yeah. And and so you kind of focus on doing your job and you focus on the amazing stories that you're hearing. And you'll hear stories from some of those men and women that'll just make your eyes bug straight out of your head. Like you got shot in the chest with an RPG and you then you did what? Oh, yeah, I just pulled it out of my vest and threw it off the side of the road and started shooting back. Oh, like wow. he was talking about having tacos on Tuesday, right? I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. And I heard a story about a kid who they got stuck in a convoy and they, he was in the, he was sort of in the back quarter of the convoy in his vehicle. And it was the one lane road. He couldn't go forward. He couldn't go backward. And they were taking fire. And people in the front had abandoned their vehicle. So nobody was moving. Everybody was sitting targets. This kid gets out of his vehicle, runs to the front. Now, the fire, the bullets are coming from the front to the back. He's running from the back to the front. So he's running into fire. Mm-hmm. Right runs through it and drives these cars off the road and managed to get the convoy moved again, saved a whole bunch of lives. Now, that's an amazing story. But listening to this 19-year-old kid tell this story, one, it gave me nightmares that night, which was kind of far out. But he told it like, and then the guy dropped back for a pass, and then he caught it, and then it was a touchdown. Like, Like it was exciting, but it was just not anything you don't normally see on Saturday. I don't know if these kids have just been so well trained that they're on autopilot or if they're just that awesome. I think it's a combination of the both, but I don't really know for sure. I think so, too. My dad never talks about his time overseas. Obviously, you don't face war and come home and get real chatty about it. But he's often told me that it's just part of the job and there has to be some segmentation. You compartmentalize things. So it's easier maybe to talk about it when you're compartmentalizing it, maybe. Yeah, I think so, too, that there may be just, you know, we wall parts off and we talk about that part like it's a like it's an engine part. Right. You know, Um, but I tell you, I've seen some kids over there that, man, I watched the kid in the Baghdad ER. Um, Remember, they did a TV show about it. Mm -hmm. And this kid, 22, 23 years old, man, he'd seen things that he was never going to unsee. 
Right. He had a thousand yard stare worse than I, he defined thousand yard stare for me. I mean, I'd heard the term before, but I'd never really seen it. Mm-hmm. I mean, this kid was, this kid was like, he was in yesterday or he was in tomorrow or mm. whatever. He wasn't there. That makes me sad. Yeah. And it was scary to look at too. I mean, it really was. True sacrifice. And that's why those heroes should be honored in every way. Yeah. You know, especially today, mm-hmm. especially today. So let's switch gears a little bit. You've interviewed, obviously, a slew of people in different areas, but let's talk music. I hear you've interviewed a member of the Beatles. So who was one of your favorites? Who was the biggest surprise? And was there anyone you thought would be one way and flip the switch on you? I interviewed Paul McCartney. I hung up on him. <laughs> oh, no. Um, I, I didn't mean to. The phone died. The phone disconnected or something. And there was a dial tone. And I, I started crying. I was like, oh, my God, I just hung up on Paul McCartney. <laughs> And and I'm live on the radio, you know, it's like just hung up on Sir Paul McCartney. And I hit the next song and moved on. And a guy called me and goes, dude, you just hung up on Paul (laughs) McCartney. And I was like, okay, well, when you put it that way, it sounds way cooler, you know. But Sir Paul was really nice. He was really gracious. He was just as cool as you would want him to be. And I asked him if he goes into the studio to cut an album, a CD, or a record. I said, well, I said, what do you say? What's your vernacular? Do you go to the studio to cut an album? Do you cut a record? Or, or what do you say? And he said, oh, that's a really good question. And I think I'll remember that till the day I die. And I had to admit that I stole it from Letterman. But um, I, okay. uh, who was not that I expected to be? I don't know that I really have any expectations of what these people are going to be. I've interviewed some rock stars that were pretty disappointing in that I've sort of felt like they were caricatures of themselves and I really wasn't getting the real person. Some of these guys that have been doing this for such a long time have sort of been the shuck and jive song and dance man. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's hard for them to turn it off. But I'll just say this about them. There's sometimes a difference between the image people project and the actual person that they are. And sometimes there's a difference between the actual person they are and the actual person that they are while I'm interviewing. Right. You know, so my experience with these people is sometimes kind of limited. You know, McCartney may just be, he may be the worst person in the world, but he may just be really good at doing radio interviews and seeming like a decent person. Some of these people that I thought were really terrible may be great people that I just caught on a bad day. Yeah. So when you talk to somebody for 15 minutes, you don't really learn a lot about them. So. Yeah, McCartney was great. I've, I've I've had a really great chance to interview a lot of people, and I prefer interviewing musicians because I think we have more to talk about than I do politicians. Um, politicians scare me a little bit because I don't spend a lot of time in in their area, you know. And, and so, and I always I always feel like I'm either there's too much cologne in the air, or <laughs> I'm not getting the whole story, and I'm not smart enough to know the whole. I interviewed this one guy when I was out in the Pentagon, and it's like, man, you did not get the message in the 90s that there is too much Dracar. Oh, no. I hadn't smelled that much of it since I was at <laughs> Dillard's in 1993, right? It was awful. And all he did was shout talking points at me for five straight minutes. Oh, wow. And, and getting through all of that is an interview skill that I haven't yet worked out how to do. I think that's the point, though, with some politicians. I don't think they want you to get through to certain points and move on. You ever been on a, on a trail ride on a horse, like you go down to a ranch and you get on Pepper and somebody else gets on Smokey and mm-hmm. you go on a trail ride? You can pull that horse to the right, to the left. You can pull back on the rein, try and get him stopped. That horse is following the horse in front of him. I don't care what you do. Mm-hmm. You can take your hands off the reins and just sit there. That horse is following the horse in front of him. He has been trained to go on that path. And that's what I feel like when I get a lot of interviews. 
with politicians, right? That I could ask him what your favorite comic book is, and he's going to tell me what his campaign manager told him to tell me, right? right? I mean, do you like Spider-Man or Batman? Well, we imprison too many people in this state. and We've got to do something about it. <laughs> and and it's, it seems to me that when you talk to musicians, you're talking really more to real people than a projected image of a person. That's understandable. Let's talk parties. Have you brushed shoulders with anyone noteworthy that you were like, dude, that guy's in the room. That's so cool. I was at a party one time. Robert Plant was there, but he, you know, I didn't get a chance to talk to him. I've been at some parties where some rock and roll bands were there, and I don't think the statute of limitations still run out. So <laughs> I think I'm going to keep those to myself. Understood. Um, but I've, you know, most of the parties that I used to go to, I mean, hell, I'm old and gray these days. I don't go to a lot of parties. You know, most parties I go to nowadays start sometime in the early afternoon and are done <laughs> shortly after sundown. But I've been to a couple of rock and roll parties that would, uh, that, well, that my mother doesn't need to hear about. So were these pre-Dana? No. Uh, some of them. Some of them were with Dana. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, some of them were with her. She's so amazing. I think she is, too. So how long have you guys been married? As of just day before yesterday, 20 years. I was going to say happy anniversary. That's really awesome. Congratulations. You know something? It's it, You'd be married to me for 20 years and you earn a medal. She might have a few. Yeah, she's. I've, I've earned all the gray hair on her head. <laughs> You obviously teach at OU, so let's talk COVID a little I bit. Do. Teaching during pandemics, not for the fate of heart, right? We all know that. So what have you learned no, about yourself yeah. through the pandemic in the last six months and with the start of school? That my tolerance for not killing people for doing stupid things is higher <laughs> than I thought it was. Um, the, t- the, t- the time a student emailed me and told me that her roommate had gone to a concert, I lost my mind. And people, people are afraid, okay? When people are scared, they don't do wise things, right? We have people of all age groups doing less than intelligent things right now because they're scared, trying to grab some control over a situation that they don't feel like they have any control over, mm-hmm. uh, which is people why, why you get people going to concerts, why you get people refusing to wear masks. This is, oh, I'm doing it this way, you know, and it, it, counterproductive though it may be, it does give them a sense of control over their own personal situation. So I respect that. But yeah, you're right. Teaching during Armageddon is is not for the faint of heart. What have I learned about myself? I, I've, I've reinforced the idea that I'm in teaching for the kids. I'm in it for the interaction I get with my students, for the energy, for the, the new ideas, for the young approach to problems I've been dealing with now professionally for 30 years. There's a lot of payoff there for me. And when you teach on Zoom, there's sort of all of the work and none of the payoff. But here's the thing about what about, about teaching right now is that I don't know if you looked around or not. Nobody knows what the hell is going on. Yeah. Nobody knows what to do. Nobody has any clue. Everybody's looking around for somebody to tell them what to do, but nobody knows what to do. And in the case of the kids in my class, I can hold up a light. You know, I can say, listen, this is the way to go. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to succeed in spite of the difficulties. We're going to build character from it. We're going to teach ourselves that when this pandemic is over, that whatever comes next, bring it on. Yeah. You know, that, that we're, we're going to handle this. We're going to take our licks and we're going to do what we got to do. And we're going to prove to ourselves that, yes, Virginia, we do kick ass. 
Yeah, that's amazing. That's an amazing message to tell them. They all need it. Well, that's what that's what we got to do, right? Yeah. Because these are the ones that are going to have to grow. When they get out of college, they're going to be dealing with this, right? They're going to have kids that are that are going to have to deal with the economic impact mm-hmm. of this. The changes to the educational system that are happening right now, their kids, my students' children that they have yet to have, will be living with it. So these kids need to be able to know how to persevere. They need to know what resilience means. And you do not teach resilience. You show resilience. Right. So, you know, suck it up. Tough it out. We got a message to deliver. Amen. Speaking of message, let's talk about that fateful day when you realized you had cancer. When I realized I had cancer, I didn't realize I had told I had cancer. Right. Um, on November 23rd, you know, I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give you the elevator pitch on November 23rd, about three 30 in the afternoon, Saturday, I was sitting in my chair playing a video game, waiting to go over to my friend Larry's house to watch the OUTCU game. Uh, and then it was Sunday when I finished playing my little video game on my phone, I started, there were kind of tracers down in the left-hand corner of my eye mm-hmm. and it made me feel a little wonky. And sometimes my back, my back had been hurting at the time. And I told Dana that I was going to lay down on the living room floor. And I remember telling her that. But then, literally, it was Sunday. Wow. And somebody was trying to tie me to the bed. The first, the first memory I have, now this was hours after I waked up. See, what happened was that I had a seizure. And I started trashing the place. I mean, I'm throwing people around. I'm smashing into furniture, smashed up a bunch of teeth. It was it was horrible. So they called the cop and the paramedics and they thought I was overdosing on meth or something like that, because I'm at this point, I'm standing up, I'm moving around, I'm talking but my brain and my body are not connected in any way, shape, or form. Wow. And, and I started fighting them. And, and I woke up the next day and I asked my wife, I said, man, how come I feel like I got my butt kicked? She goes, because you did by like seven cops. And I was like, why do my legs hurt so bad? Because that's where they were standing trying to hold you down. Wow. That's when they hit me with the Narcan because they thought I was overdosing. I, I, you know, Narcan slowed me down exactly nothing. Right. So I'm fighting the paramedics in, in the ambulance. I get to the hospital. The hospital's like, uh-uh, you're done. <laughs> Propofol. And that, of course, put me right down. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is when my heart stopped and I had started having trouble breathing. Mm-hmm. And they, so they intubated me. And so I was on a respirator before COVID happened. Right. So let me tell you something. You don't want to be on these respirators. And my wife sat there with me the whole time. Right. She didn't know if I was going to wake up or not. She did. I, I mean, and did she want me to wake up? What, what kind of condition was I going to be in? She had to have been wondering if she's going to wipe my butt the rest of my life, right? I mean, what a long night that had to have been. Mm-hmm. And I'm just laying there completely oblivious on an intubator. Well, the next morning they come in and say, listen, we're going to wake him up. She says, first thing he's going to do is start pulling that tube out and say, get me out of here. Now, it was more profane than that, but that's exactly what happened. And the hospital had it in their mind that I needed to keep breathing. I wanted to get the tube out of my throat, so they had to tie me down. And I remember waking up, and I saw the clock, and I was like, wait, that's not my clock. And it said 945. And I was like, okay, so it's 945 at night. Why is it daylight? Because then I looked over, and I saw out the window, and it was daylight. And I'm like, wait, what happened to the last 18 hours? And why am I trying to strangle this guy? Why am I trying to punch? What the hell is going on here? Hmm. It was like you waked up into this weird nightmare, right? And then they came in and told me that I had essentially a brainstorm Hmm. and like every circuit in my head fired all at once. Wow. And 
they now let, let me tell you let me tell you what I learned about God here. They told me to come back in April. This was in November. They told me to come back in April for a follow up MRI. Right, buddy of mine, Tim says, man, you know, I don't think you need to wait till April. I think you need to go see this guy, and I think you need to go see him now. I said, well, I can't get in to see that guy. He's, you know, he's he's really busy, and he's backed up to, like, April of 2027 or whatever. I'll make some phone calls. Turns out my buddy knows some people, right? Mm. And I got some other friends that know some people that called him, too. So he comes home from India two days early to see me. Wow. And I think he was pretty disappointed when I wasn't like Mick Jagger or something when, I, <laughs> when he walked in the room because he'd been getting all these phone calls, right? And he says, listen, I don't know what this is, but it needs to come out now. I wouldn't wait till April. I would do this now. And I'm like, by now? What do you mean now? He goes, how about Thursday? Wow. Uh, okay, let's party. Let's go. So Thursday, December 12th, I had what they call it, a craniotomy mm -hmm. and a tumor resection. Uh, and a guy named Dr. Ian Dunn did it. And Kim, I'll tell you, if I'm alive in five years, it'll be because of what Ian Dunn did for me. They had what my neuro-oncologist calls the best tumor resection she's ever seen. They removed 100% of the tumor that they could see. So one week later, longest week of my life. On December 19th, 2019, at about 8.20 in the morning, we met Dr. Dunn in his office, and he told me that I had a grade 4 glioblastoma, which is a GBM, glioblastoma multiform, which is a bastard of a brain tumor. Wow. It's the one that killed uh, Bo Biden. It's the one that killed Neil Peart. It's the one that killed John McCain. Uh, about 12,000 people a year get diagnosed with this. There is currently no cure for this, hmm. uh, and it does kill more people than it doesn't. So the question becomes not how to cure this, but how to live with it, how to live in spite of it. Mm -hmm. And they told me that living with this cancer is about taking all the steps. And I said, so it's about the grind. And they said, oh, yeah. And, I, and at that point, I knew I had a chance because I, I'm a better mule than most mules are. <laughs> I'll grind all day long. I'll take all the steps. I will not skip any step. Mm -hmm. We've been fighting cancer ever since, and I was struck a couple of months ago by, uh, remember Stuart Scott? He was an ESPN anchor that passed away from pancreatic cancer a couple yeah. of years ago. Really yeah. inspirational guy. And he said that you don't lose to cancer when you die. You lose to cancer when you stop living. Yes, I remember that. So I'm just, I'm going to live just as hard as I can. And I'm going to take all the lessons I can find, and I'm going to shine all the light I got as long as I got. Yeah. And so far, it seems to be going pretty good. Well, you look great. I mean, the transformation in you, <laughs> physically, mentally, spiritually, I mean, I've seen a huge difference in, in just what you've become, who you've become. So what has cancer, other than the horrid story that you had to go through and poor Dana and little David had to go through, what has it done for you as a person after this? This has been a struggle for me for a long time, Kim. It really has because... Um, I mean, first of all, let me tell you, cancer is a hell of a weight loss program. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend it, but it is effective. It scared the weight off me because I was afraid to eat. Mm -hmm. um, one of the first things I learned is that cancer feeds on glucose, which is sugar. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. Don't eat sugar. No sugar beverages. No, I drink water and coffee with no sugar in it. I don't eat candy. I mean, I eat fruit, but I have a you know sensible amount of fruit every day. I eat fruit, not fruit-flavored things. Mm -hmm. I don't drink fruit juice, so I took all the sugar out. The other thing that cancer eats is glutamines. And I'm like, oh, what are glutamines? So I Googled, what are glutamines? Glutamines are in everything. 
Glutamines are in anything green, anything healthy, anything worth eating has got glutamines. And huh. I thought, well, okay, great. I'm going to starve to death. And, but at least the cancer won't get me, right? Right. And so for weeks, I was, I was terrified to eat. I, I didn't know what to eat. I, I, somebody had told me that you should go keto diet and just eat nothing but protein and fats and stuff like that. So, man, I mean, I was eating pine nuts by the ton. Wow. Do you know how much spinach you have to eat to gain weight? <laughs> I, I don't have any idea either, but I know it's a lot. And finally, I got a hold of a lady named Fran Olson, and God bless you, Fran, if you hear this. And she actually used to be the dietitian at the Stevenson Cancer Center for cancer patients. She's like, well, I know exactly what to do with you. And she lined me out here, eat this, do this, do this. So instead of having people tell me, don't, 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 she said, do, 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 do. She gave me a very narrow lane to diet lane to stay in. I have a certain amount of protein that I need to get in every day. I have a certain amount of fruits and vegetables that I need to get in every day. And that gave me a path to follow. Then they told me that if you keep moving during cancer treatments, you will have a better time of treatments. Treatment won't be so hard on you and gamma ray treatments are really hard on you. Um, and you'll have a better chance of survival after treatment. Wow. So I called up my old rugby buddy. And I'm telling you what, Kim, if you want to keep moving, call old rugby players. They will keep you moving. My <laughs> brother John Beely showed up at my doorstep at 6 o'clock in the morning banging on the door. And we'd get out and we would go to the gym or he built a gym in his basement so we could wow. work out during the pandemic. And in the dark, in the rain, in the snow, in the mud, we work out. And then on top of that, Tim Sholin called me and he goes, hey, man, let's go climb down to the top of Mount Scott and figure out how we're going to beat this cancer. That became Hike to Heal. And Hike to Heal is now turned into something that is inspiring people. I mean, we have people on these hikes now that are healing from spousal abuse, substance abuse, people that just got out of prison, people dealing with PTSDs, people who lost spouses to brain tumors. Wow. Imagine the courage that takes. This guy's got a brain tumor. My wife died of a brain tumor. I'm going to go hiking with him. I mean, talk about pouring salt in your own wounds, right? Yeah, that's actually was what I was going to ask you about next. Tell us about Hike to Heal. If someone wants to join, where can they find the information? I mean, it's, it's pretty powerful what you're doing. Well, here's the thing about Hike to Heal. Hike to Heal is not something, I, I don't think we're doing anything, Kim. I think we're just walking. The healing is kind of happening. We, we started walking. Hike to Heal 1 was back in January. We went down to Elk Mountain, down in the Wichita's. I was so weak, I almost fell off a cliff. Mm. Now we have groups of up to 30, uh, so masks are required. you got to bring masks and PPE and hand sanitizer and all that kind of stuff because we do have a lot of people in our group who are immune compromised, mm -hmm. you know, myself included. So we got to be real careful. And we've got some people that are healing from spousal abuse and people who need to be protected. So we are a closed private group. Okay. Uh, we do accept requests to be in the group. If you want to find us, if you want to get out on the trail with us, find us at Hike to Heal on Facebook. There are some questions that you, you got to answer. How'd you hear about us? What do you hope to get from us? That kind of thing. You have to read the rules and you have to agree to the rules. Mm -hmm. Okay, the rules are respect each other. The rules, are, you know, take care of the trail. It's, it's simple stuff, right? So find us on Facebook. You got to find your own way to us, right? I don't want to recruit you. I want to show you the way. You got to find. You got to take the steps yourself. Um, and meet us at the trailhead. We walk. Um, we we have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and water, and and the healing just happens. You know, people it. start talking to each other and sharing stories, and you get out there in the fresh air and. Kim, the, the repetitiveness of the steps, the one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, it clears out the mind. Mm -hmm. And you're surrounded by fresh air and 
nature and the animals and the sounds of the bugs and the water and it's whatever. Music. It's all the music of nature. Yeah, it is. When your mind is quiet, mm-hmm. you can hear it. Uh, when your mind is not quiet, you can't hear it. And the repetitiveness of the steps quiets the mind. And when the mind is quiet, that's when God descends to you. Yep. That's when the wisdom that you're looking for comes and finds you. That's just like the Bible verse, be still and know I am God. Right. I agree. Totally. 100%. Um, but yeah, be still. Be still. And, you know, I heard some t- one time from, a, from a, a trail guide I was with a long, long time ago that you have to sit quietly in the wilderness for 20 minutes before the wilderness gets used to you being there and reveals itself to you. Animals from miles away hear you or smell you or whatever. Bugs that are immediately next to you freeze. You have to sit perfectly still and breathe for at least 20 minutes. So be still and the wisdom comes to you. Yeah, that's amazing. I so appreciate your time, David. Oh, yeah, no sweat. Thanks for telling my story. Please um, come hike with us because the point of this is kind of selfish, Kim, to be honest with you, is to find meaning in suffering, right? What me and my family are going through, I wouldn't wish on anybody because there is a certain amount of uncertainty that is baked into this every day. Like my next scan, September 21st, and the anxiety is beginning to build and it's building all over the house, right? Is it going to be good? Is it not going to be good? If it's not good, what do we do? Don't spend too much time thinking about that. Then you going to miss today. And it just gets sharp. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, those emotions get pokey. But what's happened as a result of it has been a miracle to me. It has made my life immeasurably better. And I am discovering if I can help other people in a healing path, it brings meaning to my own suffering. Right. If there is meaning to this, I got no problem doing it. I call that beautifully broken. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, we're all broken, right? Yep. I mean, but even broken crayons make pretty purple pictures. There you go. So Psalms 4610, be still and know that I am God. Just meditate on that, dude, because you got this and he's got you. Well, that's yeah, one day at a time. So far as the goody. Thank you so much. Are there any words of wisdom you'd like to pass on? When you find yourself at the bottom of a deep, dark hole, and you all will, if you haven't already, you will. The first light you have to turn on is your own. Fortunately, it gets easier to see the bright spots in the darkness because it's just so damn dark. But hope, try. I don't know if you're going to make it. You don't know if you're going to make it, but you're sure not going to make it if you don't go for it. So whether or not you want to get started in radio or whether or not you're fighting cancer or whether or not you're trying to heal yourself from something, the first thing you need to do is get up. Great words. David, thank you so much for being with me today. No sweat. Always nice to talk to you, Kim. Be good. Thank you for listening today. This is Kimberly McKay with A Novel Thought. As always, tune in each week for an uplifting and amazing guest. 